Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. My name is Dux, and I am your host, and this is... Well, <laughs> hi, I'm Tyler. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I don't know what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Yeah, because this podcast is about video game history, and we talk about video game history-related things. But first off, how have you been, Tyler? I'm doing okay. Uh, you know, busy, busy as always, but I have had a bunch of gaming time recently. So I'm almost at the end of Dark Souls 3. Mm -hmm. I just beat the last boss of the last DLC last night. So, nice. oh man, he's so hard to beat solo. Oh my gosh. But uh, I think we, there's just like a side boss I need to beat, the, the scary dragon. And the then dragon, like yeah. just, I don't know. I think Ruby and I are going to try and take that one on. You're welcome to come as well since I don't, I, I will never beat love, it, right? I'd love to do that. I have not beaten it yet either. Crazy hard. I do love the game though, and I'd be happy to join. It's so good. Yeah. What about you, man? Well, I've been I've been studying for university, but I've also been playing games. And I don't know, this is not nerdy enough for these circles that we spend time in. But I I like to watch soccer, and it's the European Championship right now, so I watch a lot of soccer. Throw a stone at me. It's okay. I can handle it. <laughs> Dude, I'm not gonna throw a stone at you. I just am gonna silently judge you. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no jokes aside. Um. Uh, you know, people love sports for a reason, right? It's exciting. It's fun. You get to have that sort of like team spirit, even though you're not on the team. Yeah, right? I'm into it. yeah it's it's fun. Uh, you know, I'm I've mentioned here on, on here before that I'm not a big sports guy, but I understand why people are yeah. sports guys. And you know? I try not to be a jerk about it because I know many sport guys are jerks about it, and I'm sure. I think I'm, I'm don't talk about it too much. Today we thought about doing something different, didn't we? We did. So <clears throat> we had an idea and, um, you know, we're, we're cruising along in episodes here, which I'm, I'm really happy about. You know, we have our same little formula at the start of every episode. And we thought today that we would do something just a little bit different. And that is, uh, if you want, you can send us an email. And if you send us an email, we want you to tell us what your first video game experience was. Okay. We'll pick our favorites. And we'll read them on air. And our favorites may or may not get some dumb game out of my stash of Humble Bundle codes that you are welcome to. Yeah, Tyler has this stash of games that nobody wants. And whenever somebody <laughs> does him a favor, instead of paying the money, he gives them a game that nobody wants. And then he thinks that that is proper compensation, even though it's not, but nobody can do anything about it. I don't know. So that's you know the terms of the contract when you sign it, Docs. <laughs> I know. I, do. I get paid in those art games. <laughs> in those art contests, they always say prizes include, <laughs> but they never say. You know, I actually did used to give out like, um, like I used to give out like vouchers for merch and stuff, and then that became a real issue because. I had to get like people's addresses and then things would get lost in the mail. And so we just switched to like digital yeah. codes for video games. But, yeah. but yeah, so codex Rex podcast at gmail.com. Send us your first, uh, your first experience with a video game, your first video game memory, and we'll read our favorites on the air uh, on the next episode. Yeah. What's your first video game experience? Oh man. Okay. I can think of it vividly. So I was like three years old and my uncle was playing one of the early Mega Mans on um, the NES and he, oh man, he was so good at Mega Man, like, like the originals. 
And, you know, remember, this is a time before save features were really a thing, although some of the later games had passwords you could use. And he had made it to Dr. Wiley and the room was tense, right? He, like you could you could tell he was like he was really focused. And <laughs> I, as a small child, began to become frightened <laughs> of this whole situation. It was like the tension was too much for me. So I climbed on the back of the couch and I started to cry. And my grandma came into the room and she went, why are you crying? And I was like, because he's at the last boss and I'm worried he's going to die. <laughs> That's so, cute. so So I remember it vividly. Couldn't tell you if he beat Wiley or not, but I remember standing on the back of this couch and, and bawling. <laughs> I just remember I must have been four years old and my, I, me and my brother would be sent to babysitters a lot to stay at their place while they were doing something. And one of my babysitters had a computer on which there was the original Lemmings game. Ooh. And and his babysitting would be sit on that chair and watch me play this game. And <laughs> I, I was totally fine with it because this game looked so fascinating, how you made the little Lemmings walk around and dig these tunnels and build these bridges. And I was completely fascinated with this concept of a game on a screen but you influence it and i was i wanted that was my favorite babysitter and i can't remember how they looked like or what their name was but i hmm. loved that they played games with me all day it's fascinating what sticks with you in that regard right right maybe that's why you like your uh your brand of docs games where you have control over things yeah it was a puzzle game all right yeah yeah, it could be. So, uh, if, again, if you want to send us an email, codexrexpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to hit us up on Twitter, it's just codexrexpodcast on Twitter. And you can find me three days a week on Twitch. And my name is just uh, Vegan Tyler. That's it. Reach out. Come hang out with us. Yes. All right, let's do this shit. to say one thing first so all right hit me with it you know how i stretch the boundaries of what qualifies as a video game history mm -hmm. podcast thing right yeah this will be one of those times where you will go what the fuck am i listening to or when when do we get to the video game part what's what's going on mm -hmm. and there's not going to be a video game part for a while and but please bear with me because I think that this episode is an approach to an answer to, to, to like answer one of the questions about video games that is really important. Okay. Because it will kind of answer why we have to do this podcast. And um, while it is also your job to just listen to me and make wacky comments, it would I would also ask you to to figure out this question. What is the big question about video games that comes from this that I will tell you? Okay. So you, let me see if I understand here. You are going to tell a story 
and I'm going to try to infer the question you are that we are asking about video games. Did I get that right? Yeah, and that that will be answered by what I will tell you now. Okay. You will know what I mean. Okay. You smart man. Uh, don't give me too much credit. Oh, no, don't <laughs> worry about it. So let's do this. I don't get hints very well. <laughs> I don't understand subtlety. <laughs> it's not going to be subtle, dude. Let's do this. <laughs> All right, let's okay. do it. It is the 29th of September, 1934. We find Ooh. ourselves in the town of Fiume, a town in what was part of the kingdom of Italy back then. A child is born that will be known as Mihali Tsinchen Mihali. We call him Mihali. Okay. Mihali wasn't actually Italian, but his family came to Italy because his dad was on a diplomat in the Hungarian consulate in Fiume. As we know and talked about many times before, the 30s and 40s were a dangerous time to be an everyday European. World War II started when Mihali was 10 years old and his two older half-brothers served in the military. One of his brothers would die during the siege of Budapest. His other brother would survive the war, but then die in a Siberian labor camp. Oof. His family was not on good terms with the communists. So when the Reds took over the Hungarian government, where they originally came from in 1949, his dad stepped down as a diplomat uh, while they were staying in Rome. Um, the new Hungarian government, which was communist, promptly responded by stripping Mihaly's entire family of their citizenship. So they, wow. were, sta so they were stateless. Pretty messed up, right? Yeah, that's a rough spot to be in. Yeah. So Mihaly, he was just 15 years old when this happened. And to make money, his dad opened up a restaurant in Rome. And Mihaly dropped out of school to help out by working and making some money for the family. And one thing really st struck Mihaly during this time of, of this time of horrible tragedy, and it was that all of these grown-up people around him were completely unable to withstand the frustration and pain that was brought upon them by this war and these disastrous conflicts. He noticed how once these people lost their home, their job, and their secure surroundings, they were completely unable to maintain happiness. You know, interestingly, uh, they've done studies about PTSD and that PTSD, like the effects of, you know, trauma can, mm -hmm. can reverberate through generations, right? Like yes, absolutely. The effect that it has on one person uh, affects their children and can affect their children's children um, due to, you know, how they deal with this trauma and then how that affects how they raise their kids. Yeah, um, a good example, if you want to read something on that, um, it's a comic book, a graphic novel, you could say it's Mouse. Uh, oh, yeah, I know Mouse. Which is, which is uh, not only a story about a person that was a victim of the Holocaust, but also about their children in America and how it influenced them as humans to have grown up to someone who was the victim of the Holocaust. But yeah, this observation of human nature at a very young age sparked this interest within Mihaly. 
and, his, and, and there was this interest about what contributes to a life worth living because hmm. he was looking for this reason for happiness that people could have. And this initial question about life itself turned Mihaly into quite the philosopher all through his adolescence. He started reading up on all kinds of different approaches to give him an answer to this big question. He read up on philosophy, on religion, got invested into art just to find an answer. How does one become a happy human being? It, I mean, this is a question that all of us ask ourselves a lot of times, and it's, yeah. it's so difficult and generalized that you can't really find an answer to that. But he was persistent. Everyone has their own answer to that, I think. Absolutely, and, yeah. You know, I think that this is... Uh... The difficult part of being a human at times is that we are, you know, so social and we're so willing to compare ourselves to others when everybody's sort of in their own story. And, um, you know, what makes one person happy might not make another person happy. And, and so looking at others and seeing them happy or like looking on their social media and thinking like, oh man, they're so happy all the time. Doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, you could get fulfillment in that same way or that you can't be happy in your own way. And I don't know, I'm, I'm tangenting here, but I think that happiness is really subjective. And we have this idea of like, just be happy, bro. Look at so-and-so, they're happy, but it's not always that easy, you know? Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history <laughs> podcast, the podcast where we talk about human introspection and not about video games at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's, um, well, it's, I mean, it's, a, but... it's a really personal question that you can generally answer for everybody, yeah? Yeah. I mean, video games are made by people and people are complex. Yeah. So he's on this search, right? Mm -hmm. And by random chance, he encountered the science of psychology. He was a young adult by now. And for some reason, he found himself at a Swiss ski resort. He was completely broke and without any way to find enjoyment. All the snow had melted. He couldn't afford anything fun that a young man could do at a Swiss ski resort. So mm -hmm. he just started reading through the newspaper to find something to do. And in there, he found some dude was going to do a presentation, like a lecture, on flying saucers, like UFOs. Okay. And what year the, is this? It's like 1950 or 1949, okay. I think pretty close after the war mm -hmm. and and this lecture was going to be in the center of zurich because there was this huge hype of um people sighting flying saucers all of a sudden like things in the air that would mm -hmm. come to take us away and mihali was like fuck yeah i'm bored out of my mind <laughs> and this sounds like the wackiest thing i can imagine let's listen to this <laughs> lecture about flying saucers um so he went to this evening lecture by a man he describes as very interesting. <laughs> um, imagine, okay. <laughs> I mean, Mihaly was going into this lecture with some expectations, right? He thought right, this was right. going to be some nut job talking about little green men and stuff. Mm -hmm. But he was entirely wrong. This was not what this lecture was about. This lecture was about the psyche of the Europeans and how the trauma of the war is now causing them to project this trauma into the sky. And oh. he claimed that the reason for these imaginary flying objects is to bring order into a world that has been burned to ashes. And in the chaos, in, like in this chaos of war. 
And imagining flying saucers, UFOs, is a mechanism to cope with the pain and nothing else. Well, that's fascinating. Mihaly instantly felt like that this had parallels to his questions. Like this question he was carrying around his entire life. How does one maintain a happy life? Because this coping mechanism was a very sane explanation for something that seemed like inexplicable madness. Well, I mean, it's like, <clears throat> it's why people, you know, get really into conspiracy theories, right? Like um, in the modern day or, you know, at any point, because it's, it's, it's like easier to believe that there's some grand Machiavellian scheme than it is to believe that the world just sucks sometimes, you know? Yeah. Like, like it's, 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 it's easier for some people to cope by thinking that there, there is a, something going on rather than just, oh, it's random bullshit that just came together in a really shitty way. It makes you feel in control. Mm-hmm. Because now you know, oh, you know the truth. You know what's going on, what's really up to, you know, the government's really up to, and they're coming after you or whatever it might be that day. Yeah. So yeah. this explanation for me, Harley, it touched the root of the human mind. And thereby it also touched what happiness is. Like, mm -hmm. the, like there was a glimpse of what it might be for me, Harley. So he started reading the books of this person. And I don't know if you know this person, but he's, he's rather famous in certain circles. Um, his name is Carl Jung. And he, he's basically like the most relevant psychological contemporary of Sigmund Freud. Like they were... They okay. knew each other. They were kind of like rivals in science. And until this day, I, I know some people that are that work in this field. There's like rivaling psychoanalyst groups where one of them, they, they only listen to what Freud said and the others only listen to what Young said. And they have like clashes sometimes where they start huge fights in the newspaper or something. It's really funny. So yeah, I am, am really yeah. surprised that there are even still devotees of freud given just how much cocaine he did and just like <laughs> how he just made up so much shit on the spot and like uh you know i think granted my my time in psychology was limited i almost did psychology in undergrad but um but uh i the gist i always got was like that freud was like an okay thought piece like you could look at some of his work and like think about it and think about whether or not it applies but that we shouldn't really take it as how things are yeah this topic is so complicated that is it is an entire an issue for an entire podcast yeah. about something like <laughs> why freud is freud is still relevant and why we still have to talk about him but why he's also kind of irrelevant is kind of it's, uh, it's a bit too much for today but you totally <laughs> have a true. point but we are not talking about Freud, we're talking about Young. He was a bit different. Uh -huh. He had a different approach to things. And um, this is how Mihaly got into um, psychology. So even though this Carl Young, during that time, already had quite the, made, made quite the name for himself, he was well known back then already, Mihaly, during this lecture, had heard of him for the first time. And this encounter inspired Mihaly's entire life. He would go on to the path to become a psychologist himself. And he started his professional career by emigrating into, where do you emigrate to in this time? To the USA. At the age of 22, he went to Chicago and started studying psychology. But his goals remained the same, trying to understand the roots of happiness. During his studies, he looked 
at a bunch of different things to figure out what causes happiness. Like one might think, okay, maybe money makes people happy. Um, so like this, he did this TED talk in 2004, which I really recommend listening to because he's hyper cute. He's like the cutest psychologist from Hungary, you can imagine. But he does this TED talk in 2004 and he brings up this statistic that he was part of, like he, he helped create it. And I think it's mm -hmm. one of those statistics everybody has heard of, but never saw the actual data for it. It's the statistic called Has Economic Growth Advanced Human Morale? And it's set in the US and was created okay. by doing surveys of people's income and um, connected to people's own opinion about the general state of happiness. Okay. And what it shows is that the average income adjusted to inflation has tripled between 1956 and 1998, but the amount of people that claim that they are very happy has always remained at 30%. Mm, I would also be really curious. <clears throat> I would also be really curious about those statistics. Um, as a guy who messes with stats, because uh, the average income in the United States has gone up, but that is heavily skewed by top earners. Like there's a really, we don't have to go into a long tangent here, but the, the income inequality in the United States is really bad. And so a lot of economic growth happens to be at the top and that doesn't necessarily, um, you know, apply to lower and middle class earners. Yeah. And so um, sometimes a much better metric is to look at the median income um, rather than the average, but still fascinating either way. Yeah, and what they like, what they generally con generally concluded from this um, was that the happiness of people after having an income about a few thousand dollars above the poverty level um, wouldn't further increase by gaining further material well-being. And so, you you if you have a certain amount of money, you don't get any happier from having more money. That kind of was to be expected, right? Mihaly didn't, like, the scientists that did that probably didn't go into this and think, like, money makes everybody happen. We figured it out. This is it. They were just cover, <laughs> cover, covering bases. That's <laughs> and, the answer. It's money. <laughs> yes. But, like, they were, like, this was trying to answer some of the big questions of humanity, and to do this, you have to answer one of, some of the smaller questions. I'm laughing because I suddenly just thought about Bear from the Magnavox episode who was like, I was really depressed until $100,000 landed in my account and then I was feeling much better. And I'm like, yeah, fucking of course you would. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, everybody but Bear, maybe. Bear was happy with money too. Yeah. Also, I think it's really important to remember that this is, uh, you know, these kind of things are aggregate data and, yeah. um, you know. It, it's it's lumping everybody together yeah individual experiences may vary i will still take a uh, hundred thousand dollars in my bank account right now uh hit me <laughs> hit me up uh i don't know uh, uh, oat milk or some shit oatly hit me up sponsorship opportunity <laughs> there's, there's something else hundred thousand dollars <laughs> i'm sorry i'm ruining your good story here with bullshit it's okay. We had a break point. There's going to be a switch now to something else because we talked about how money doesn't make you happy. But during this study, they figured something else out because they also knew what kind of professions these people had that they were asking. Mm. And um, what they figured, what they kind of encountered, for some reason, certain professions generally claimed to be happier than others. And okay. those were specifically certain professions that do not pay well. 
like he looked at artists, athletes, and scientists, because for some reason these people seem to be much more happy with their lives than others. And hmm. not only because he found them to be more happy a lot of times, but also because as an artist or scientist, you will live your life doing things for which you will probably never be recognized or paid a proper wage. Neither academia nor art nor sport make you rich. It's usually the opposite. Uh, Depends on what level of sports, but yes. Yeah, of um, course, there's always, there's, there's always well, scientists yeah. that make a bunch of money and a, bunch, a lot like artists that are hyper rich, but these are uh, this is um, uh, this. This is the rarest occasion. So I guess when I hear these things, is it because it allows them to find fulfillment in what they're doing? That's like, what he was thinking. He was like, "Why is this? Why are these people? Why do they claim to be happier than others?" I mean, I can I can tell a personal story here. I mean, yeah. I got out of undergrad and um, didn't directly get into grad school and was a like mildly directionless for a little while. And I went and worked retail and um, I, I was like really strange because they, it was like they had like, they had crowned me as the new king of retail. <laughs> I worked in a large chain, right? And like, I would get all these great reports and they were like trying to promote me to these higher level positions. And there was talk that I might go like take over a store and I'm looking at these jobs that are like, you know, $90,000 a year to start and things like that. And I gave it all up. I gave it all up to go to grad school and study politics because that was interesting to me. And now I am massively in debt <laughs> and, um, you know, in like the gazillionth year of my dissertation. But the reason I did it was because I knew that I would never find fulfillment in working retail for the rest of my life. And no offense to those who do retail. I just knew myself and I knew what I wanted. And I knew that that wasn't something that I wanted to do. What you're saying is really interesting because you exchanged something that gave you extrinsic motivation where you were motivated from the outside people were giving you recognition for what you were doing and people were giving you money for what you were doing and giving you a perspective and you exchanged that for something that had intrinsic motivation out of yourself right it was something i wanted to do for me and that is really important and that is going to be really important for what we're going to talk about next so mihali he started interviewing these people right um and this is like one of the excerpts of an interview Mihaly did with a composer. Okay. Where they describe how it feels to create a piece of music. You are in an ecstatic stage to such a point that you feel as though you almost don't exist. I have experienced this time and time again. My hand seems devoid of myself and I have nothing to do with what is happening. I just sit there watching it in a state of awe and wonderment and the music just flows out of itself. So hmm. this ecstasy of creation that is described by this person, it seems like they were stepping into like this alternate reality where nothing was ordinary anymore. And like Mihaly, they had transcended themselves almost. Yeah, right? Um, yeah. Like it, it seems a bit um, extravagant, like the, maybe it's just an artist talking in a weird way about their art. There is something like that to the act of creation, though, right. you know, to, to be like, I made this thing like I, I pulled this out of my brain and willed it into the world where it did not exist before. It, it, it's really cool feeling. Mm. And, th and that's something that Mihaly encountered in many interviews with many artists. So he has yeah. an interesting point about this. He like if you look at most things 
that we have from past civilizations like the ancient Romans, the Aztecs, the Zhao dynasty. We have like old temples, we have massive graves, we have circuses and theaters. And loads of these places are not places of these ordinary human experiences, but they are exactly of these feelings of ecstasy. Places where you would stand beside yourself and become one with these extraordinary events. And Mihaly claims that we have proof, because of this, that people have always been craving this feeling that this composer could summon by himself, this feeling of ecstasy. Hmm. And instead of having to go into the arena to watch people fight and get overwhelmed by this emotional state, he only requires a piece of paper and pen to reach the state of complete bliss. And there's other things this composer said to Mihaly, like he felt like he didn't exist, which at first seemed to Mihaly like it was a romantic exaggeration an artist would do to make a point. But during further interviews, he kept getting similar descriptions of people claiming like they lost all feeling of self during these moments of ecstasy. And Mihaly, he had like this idea about why this would be happening. Us, as humans, we can only take in a certain amount of information at a time. And with information, he means like anything that you can feel, like that you, that you have, that you feel your arm, that you feel that you are hungry, that you talk, that you listen to someone. Okay. The slightest sensation must be processed and it gets stacked onto this mound of information that has a limited size. And Mihaly calls these fragments of information that constantly flow into you bits. And during his 40-year research, he would be able to differentiate a whole bunch of quantifiable boundaries for this concept. Quantifiable meaning that he tried to establish countable measurements for how much information a normal human can take. So according to him, the average human can take in about 110 of these bits per second. But okay. he didn't only figure out this maximum value. Um, like like build a model for it, but he tried to distinguish what amount of bits certain human interactions would sum up to, like listening to a person, uh, how much does that take? He's like, about 60 came up with this number. Like he just built a model around it because if you have a limit of 110 bits and listening to a person takes 60, that's why you can't listen to two persons simultaneously because listening okay. to two persons would take 120 bits. So uh, let me make sure I'm following here. So bits, bits are just what he sort of made up, right? It's a, like, it's a measurement system he made up, yeah. It's just completely, I'm, I'm going to use this word, but it's completely arbitrary, it right? Is, yeah. Like he has made it up. It's his own scale. He's building a model so he can work with it. Okay. And so he's using um, things like speaking to someone as a baseline experience to create this model so that there's comparison between things. Yes. Okay. And so a bit is just an abstract amount of stuff you could pay attention to at one yeah, time. And there's no comparison to like a computer bit or something. It's, uh, right. it's, it's just an abstract term. He just borrowed from computer science. Okay. Just wanted to make sure I was clear. So yeah, this also explains why you can't listen to two people simultaneously if you have an average human mind. And um, then we and, and from this point, if we if we establish this model with this, he went back to the interview with the composer, and he was like, okay. "Okay, let's assume that this model is correct." Is what I mean. You always know every model is always incorrect, but you make models. 
to understand things better. That's how models work. Yeah. So he went back to this composer and his loss of existence, like he didn't feel like he was there anymore. And what if this process of creating music takes up so much of this maximum information intake that his mind does not have enough bits per second left to monitor how his body is doing. Interesting. And like, not just that, nothing outside of his artistic action has any room left within this flow of information. No hunger, no pain, no exhaustion. His physical form disappears to his inner eye and with it does his identity entirely. He just disappears, literally. So have you ever had like um, things that you were so focused on that it's just like the outside world doesn't exist? Yeah. So sometimes when I get, when I have the time and I'm able to paint minis, um, sometimes it's like I get into this focus zone where I have really good music on and I'm just staring at a mini and I'm just painting and painting and painting and painting. And then I look up and like four hours have gone by and I'm just having the fucking time of my life. And it's like, I have just completely stopped caring about anyone else or any other thing. And I've just like lost myself in it. And that's just like the most recent thing that comes to mind, like obviously playing a video game, but that is exactly that. That is exactly what these artists describe. And um, because they always also describe a complete loss of time. They have no mm-hmm. reference to how time passes anymore. So while for this composer or for you, the painting like becomes the entirety of the consciousness because there's a limit of how much attention you can pay. Now, right. one might be thinking, wait, what, what one second. Does this mean to reach happiness? I just have to completely swamp myself and work all the time. So like, <laughs> I'm like, is this what this means? And like, I'll tell you, as uh, you know, from experience, that <laughs> that doesn't work. That's <laughs> and that's also not the point that Mihaly was trying to make with this model. Right. Um, first off, this is a model. It's inherently incorrect. Um, it's just to get a better understanding of things. But second. This is not about overwhelming yourself with information, but to have found an activity that is highly complex, but you are also very good at. So it can perfectly mm. fit into your consciousness. It's like a balance between skill and challenge that completely is able to fill you out. And it must fit so well that the activity can continue without you thinking about it because you know it so well. And because it moves forward, but also... And it, it has to move forward constantly and it has to leave no room for anything else, not even your own existence. And that is only possible if you never have to go into introspection or, or reflection on what you are doing. Because this is why it only works if you have perfected the skill that you're currently using. This is why it works for you with painting because you're a really good mini painter. You've done it for years. You know how to do it. This is why the composer can completely lose himself because he does not have to think about composing. It just can flow through him. Well, I accept I accept your comment on mini painting, but yeah. you know, it's definitely one of those like I look at it and go, oh, I could be so much better. But you know, yeah, but you, you are afterwards right. during the process itself, you have 
um, develop techniques so thoroughly that you often don't have to think about it, right? Yeah, it's kind of like an autopilot. Like yeah. you're you're looking at it, and it then you go, you know, that would be that would be you know you look at it and you go that would be this shade of blue, and then you go pull that blue out of the box and you're painting it, and you don't even have to think about it. You just looked yeah. at it and you knew, right? Like what would be best for it. But that takes a long time to be able to look at something and know what would look good on it. Right. And this is something that Mihaly noticed too. All of these people that claim to be very happy with their jobs, with their artistic jobs and their scientific academia jobs, these were all people that were highly experienced in a certain field and had like perfected, or not perfected as an overstatement, but had sure. a, a very developed technique for this skill that they were using. And the important point here is that not everybody can reach the state of ecstasy from composing or from painting minis, but only the composer can because he is very well trained in what he's doing. The, the technique is highly developed, so the process itself requires no self-reflection whatsoever. And all of these descriptions that um, he got from people he interviewed often contain this massive um, metaphor of something flowing. So Mihaly used this name, this mental state, uh, and, and he he named it the flow experience or short flow which is today a generalized a generally um uh, accepted term for the experience that you just described for yourself for painting how interesting let's see another quote from a poet that one of mihali's students interviewed it's like opening a door that's floating in the middle of nowhere. And all you need to do is go and turn the handle and open it and let yourself sink into it. You can't particularly force yourself through it. You just have to float. And if there's any gravitational pulls from the outside world trying to keep you back from the door, it's like imagine like when I, when I, like when I do art, like when I'm super mm -hmm. fixed into doing one of these stupid memes I do for your channel, where I start doing it and all of a sudden six hours later and I painted an entire bird with that animated and shit like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I get into this state, but as soon as something from like, if my wife walks in or if something else happens, I completely break out of this um, hyper-focused state of this flow mm -hmm. experience. So it's a very, it's a very, it's a balance act, right? You have to, you have to balance yourself to stay in it. That's really fascinating because uh, like when I'm working on my, like my academic work, I have to be, uh, I, you know, I call it in the zone, right? Uh, mm -hmm. my fiance calls it tunneling. She's <laughs> only looking down the tunnel. She can't see anything on her peripherals. She has to look down the tunnel, but like, I'm very distractible. And so the second something pulls me out of the zone, uh, it's hard for me to go back in. Like I like that's always the hardest part for me is getting started and getting moving because I'm constantly distracted by things. But if I can turn off all the distractions and just focus, I can. Yeah, I can flow. Once right? you yeah, once you flow, it's okay. But you have to start flowing, and it's and mm -hmm. it's not something you can really do. You can, you cannot actively engage flowing. You have it kind of has to happen by itself. It's right. really weird. But everybody, I think many people might be able to relate to this sensation, and know what we're talking about. Like it's not yeah. something you can force. Um, and let's hear a last one last quote from an interview because it's really interesting because it says some it uses a word that you just used too. Um, it's mm -hmm. from an um, Olympic ice skater, and they say 
it was just one of those programs that clicked. I mean, everything went right. Everything felt good. It's just such a rush. Like you feel it could go on and on and on. Like you don't want to stop because it's going so well. It's almost so as you don't have to think. It's like everything goes automatically without thinking. It's like you're an automatic pilot. So you don't have any thoughts, you hear the music, but you're not aware that you're hearing it because it's all part of it all. Um, hmm. And now I never have... thought of that in the context of ice skating, but I suppose you could apply that to like any kind of I'm I'm going to lump skating in with dance, but you know, any any kind of dance or performative art, right? Yeah. L- being able to lose yourself in the performance. Yes, absolutely. Um, and what's happening now is that we have nearly arrived to where we want to be because this is still a video game history podcast. Mm-hmm. And we just need to take like a few more steps until we reach the video game connection. Um, but may- maybe you're seeing it already. I don't know. So should I should I tell you what I'm thinking here? If you, yeah, like, yeah, sure. So are we, are we essentially talking about like why we play video games? Yes. Like in, a, in an abstract way? And perhaps the answer is because we can lose ourselves in them, right? Like That is to at least the answer we would get from taking the flow approach. If you would say okay. the flow theory is correct, um, um, which we know it partially is, flow might be a reason why we love this and why we love video hmm. games. And I think it might be a very broad question but i think it's an important question to ask in a video game history podcast is why do we love video games why do we yeah. why do we want to take part in this i mean just at a base level you know i think that um you could apply this to other forms of art too right like think about people who are just super into books right just read all the time they can't wait for a new book to come out the new book in the series is going to come out they have favorite authors you know, um, they go to book clubs, they hang out and they talk about books they read. Uh, similar, right? It's just a more passive experience. Yeah, Video games absolutely. are just a more active experience um, of, of, of telling a story. And so I think that to psychoanalyze this even further, I think a question would just be like, why do we like stories? <laughs> you know, why do we like telling tales? Um, if you really want to distill this, but I'm curious where you go with this. Um, to, to go further with what you just said um, and to, to jump ahead a bit, um, Mihaly actually also figured out that flow can happen with any activity. There's no limit to what it can be. You just have to love it. Huh. And it, it has to, there has to be this, a few conditions okay. have to be met and he kind of he kind of extracted these conditions and uh, standardized them so people could use them. That's why his theory is used a lot because he's, he did a really good job at standardizing the questions that you have to ask and the conditions that have to be met so you can use it well in a psychological environment. So what we see from these quotes that we just read is that there seems to be a few aspects of being in this flow state, these conditions that I talked about, and how Mihaly can define them. It's like seven conditions. I'm just going to read them and talk about them a bit. But I think they, they very clearly describe what we already talked about. The first condition is you need to intensely concentrate on the here and now, what is happening. No thought of the past, no thought of the future. Second, you have to feel that your actions are separated from reality. So that you, it, it, the thing is just itself. It's an alternate reality. Then you have to know what needs to be done 
So that if there's any self-reflection, you will immediately drop out of the flow state. You have to know what that you can do it. So if there's doubt, if the challenge that's in front of you cannot be done by you, you will also drop out of the flow state. That's why it's another aspect of having perfected the technique. The fifth one is that you have to lose any worry and awareness of yourself. So any pain, any hunger, anything needs to leave. You have to lose any sense of time and the action must motivate itself. Intrinsic motivation, remember? The reason why you chose a different life path because the motivation comes out of itself because that is right. what causes you to feel good about it, to be able to lose yourself in it. And none of these things you can force, right? You think like, these are conditions, but I can't make this happen. I can't go like, I am concentrating myself now intensely and I will not be interrupted because this is all, I will lose right, my sense right. of time now. Zip, ooh, it's five hours later. <laughs> Although I don't know about you, but I definitely can. I can definitely set up the conditions in which it could occur, but that doesn't mean that I it does. That's a good so point. So for example, like... I know that if I really need to focus, I need to be alone in the room or my cell phone needs to be off or like there are literally days where I will unplug my internet so that I will work, you know, you know, and do things so that I'm not distracted, knowing that that pulls me out of my zone. But that doesn't mean I'll, that doesn't mean I'll feel it. I could still open up all my work I need to do or get out my minis or whatever it is I'm going to do that day and still not like feel it. Yeah, this is why these conditions are so important because they don't tell you you have to reach this, but they can they indirectly tell you you have to build an environment in which this is possible. Right. Which is why, to jump ahead a little bit, Mihaly's theories are um, very well renowned in the um, corporate world, like to optimize work processes. How do I make the worker go into flow? How do I build an environment that's good for um, for 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 my workforce? Stuff like that. Um, work psychologists love me, Harley's shit. They, I'm they, sure. <laughs> um, How do I make my workers love their work? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe pay them. I don't know. Yeah. Um, oh, gee, what a fucking novel concept. <laughs> So yeah, um, <laughs> these rules Mihaly and his peers came up with by conducting thousands and thousands of interviews over several decades. Like he did 40 years of work just on this. Holy shit. Um, and he's still working on it. He's still alive. Wow. And they kind of describe what can what this flow experience, where it can come from. And what he figured out, we talked about this already, it can, just, it, come, it can come from anything that you do. Anything can induce this flow state as long as these conditions are met. Um, and as long as it's, it, it has to be challenging in any way, and the challenge has to meet your skill level. This is a, a bit complicated to talk about because a challenge of something can also be adjusted by how you do it, right? Like watching TV can be challenging if you're concentrating really hard and if you want to see right. what's going on. So you have to have a certain skill level. So he even says watching TV can induce a flow state if you're really invested into what you're watching. So you're really paying attention to see the details. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, think about, think about watching a movie by yourself with no distractions versus watching a movie with a room full of friends who are all chatting, right? Perfect you're going to miss shit. Yeah. You're not going to get the same level of gravity because you're trying to not only focus on, 
you know, who's crunching chips next to you or who's doing whatever. You know, I have an interesting story about that. I went to go see one of the Spider-Man movies with a friend of mine and um, he bought some popcorn and I could not tune out the sound of him chewing popcorn and he was trying to be so quiet about it. So like, imagine the sound of like someone pulling popcorn out of a bag and eating it. Okay. You've got that sound in your mind. Yeah. Slow it down where the person's <laughs> trying to be quiet to the point that you could hear the popcorn. You could hear the stress of the popcorn between his teeth, like that creak. I barely remember the movie I went to see because I could not tune out this dude's popcorn. Like, oh boy. so also maybe that's why I don't really like movie theaters that much, but <laughs> point being I'm distractible. And so it took me out of the experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, a good example of how easy you can get pulled out of flow. Yeah. So for now we are kind of done with Mihaly's flow theory we figured this out. Now we have to take the step to the computer video game thing. And as I told you before, this theory has found its way into many different areas of psychology, into teaching techniques, workforce, motivation, and many other aspects of our life, where it is important to keep humans content about their actions. And like, let's take a little step back. Do you remember Mihaly's original question? What makes people happy? Yeah, well, how do you live a happy life? Yeah. yeah. And um, flow is what Mihaly identified as the ultimate joy um, because it disconnects you from yourself and from whatever worry you might have, which is, hmm. it is a bit weird to think of that, right? That we're happy sure. if we lose ourselves, if we are not ourselves. That's that. But also we as humans have base level needs and like biological imperatives that compel us to worry all the time or to seek out food or to whatever, yeah. right? Like things that we can't really turn off that suck, <laughs> but like keep us alive, right? Yeah. So it makes um, sense that something that actually can turn that off makes right. us feel really good. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's my interpretation of it at least. And let's like let's take another step back. Do you feel like that there's anything in your life that ever gave you the flow experience? And you already answered this question. You already said you are mini painting, but you also mentioned that this happened to you with video games, right? Oh yeah. Okay. So it yes. So I'll give you a perfect example. Last night I played I played Dark Souls three, and then afterward I jumped into the Discord and played Phantom Abyss. I'm going to talk about these and they're relevant. Um, sometimes when I'm playing a certain game, people will tell me, well, you shouldn't stream that game or you should just play that solo because you need your full focus on it. So while I was fighting the last boss of the DLC last night, I was in the fucking zone. But that meant that I couldn't like respond to chat. Like mm. usually I turn, I talk to chat, I turn, I talk to chat, but like I was focused. I was in it. I was going to beat him. I was going to do it. I had the music on. I had everything. I had trained for this fucking moment. Yeah. And so like, I just didn't talk to chat. I just was, I was, I was in the tunnel. Right. And so like, um, yeah, for sure. Or like, I think even further back when I really was into playing world of Warcraft, when I was like a Dude. late teen, early twenties, the feeling of, doing a raid where 
everything is perfectly orchestrated and you have your specific job and you pull it off flawlessly and the feedback that you get from completing this like completely meaningless task of like you need to kick this boss every six seconds on a rotation so that 20 other people's experience doesn't get ruined like it 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 it, it feels so good, right, to be it's like a part of that machine. It's interesting that you talk about feedback because Mihaly also goes into that these actions, they have to be unambiguous. Like you have to know when you did it right immediately, mm -hmm. which in World of Warcraft you perfectly, you know when you did it right. You instantly right. know when you did it right. And also it has to be, it has to have instant feedback, um, yeah. which, which it also gives you. So World of Warcraft, that's also something I've written in this script, um, is a, a very good example of a game that can induce a heavy flow state where you lose yourself in the game mm -hmm. if you have built the skill to face the challenge. Because as you said, a raid only works like that if everybody knows what they're doing. Right. I don't know what modern day raids are like because I stopped raiding a very long time ago. Yeah, I can tell you, they suck. Um, That's what they <laughs> do. Oh, World of Warcraft. <laughs> That's a story for another day. Um, yes. But I'm also thinking about this, like, I'm also thinking about how sometimes certain games require you to be in that zone, in that flow. So Phantom Abyss, um, I can hold a, mm, I don't know, I, I usually can hold a conversation while I'm playing games, but playing Phantom Abyss, which by the way, if you don't know Phantom Abyss, this game is out, it's out in early access right now, it's like you're you know uh what is it like i don't know temple run mixed with mirror's edge mixed with fall guys mixed That's with i don't know it's very strange temp temple run mixed with mirror's edge is a good example it's a good description so like asynchronous multiplayer thing and you're like running through this temple and you're like quick reaction times and shit's chasing you and you're like dodging traps and it gets faster and faster and faster and as i get further in i can devote less of my attention to talking to people to, to doing anything else other than the game. I have to be in it or I die. And the second that breaks, like Ruby told me to use a new ability uh, last night and I tried it and it like broke my way of doing things and I like almost died immediately, right? Yeah. It like took me out of the zone. So yeah, I, I totally think you can get that from video games and, and maybe people look for that. I would even theorize that um, video games are especially good at inducing flow state because they yeah. meet these conditions in an artificial way. They like they are the perfect environment to induce a flow state. But like speed running. Dude, speed running. Yeah. Like I just yeah, that's the, the that's my flow state. The longer you think of this, the more examples related to video games yeah. you come up with where you think like shit, this game too and this game too. All of this all of these games that I love, yeah. I love because they bring me into this state of bliss, into this state of not existing anymore because they take up my entire consciousness. Yeah. And it's 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 a bit scary too. <laughs> I mean, but like I said, man, I think that we humans are constantly looking for ways to turn their brain off since the since the first people figured out how to ferment shit <laughs> and drink it yeah, right? Indeed, right like you know that that's that's how we are that's just how we're built which is weird to think about as you said but like yeah we're looking for experiences outside of ourselves 
I, I, I totally feel like we're doing the Joe Rogan experience. You're like, dude, yeah, it's a human condition. You have to do shit like that. And I totally can relate to you now. We have been com from completely different sides of society, but now we have found this common denominator and we can all live in peace together and everything's cool and all. Yeah. Uh, I once heard Joe Rogan <laughs> described as uh, the male version of Gwyneth Paltrow, and I've Ooh. never been able to unhear it. It's pretty good. It's pretty good description. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he'll set up a website where we can sell psychic vampire stickers. So. <laughs> okay, but um, to to go to kind of elaborate further on this, the satisfaction that I got for during my life from gaming is insane. Yeah. There's nearly no other activity in my life that has taken me into these complete states of ecstasy, and ecstasy meaning loss of self. And for some reason, the longer I researched, I was like, yeah, losing myself is a really good way to feel happy because whatever suffering or emotional pain one might have, it always comes, it always comes from within yourself. It's all, it, because you, it, your suffering never comes from outside. It's always something that came into you and then it stays there and it makes you feel bad about yourself. And if you can make that disappear only for a moment, it's really good, especially as a person that's growing up because growing up is tough sometimes for sure i think that um i think a lot of people scoff at um kids and teenagers at times uh, and like oh what do you know oh you're what are your problems but it's like dude they suck when you're that age right like navigating a complicated world full of shitty people and shitty things can be really difficult for someone who's just coming into it and yeah they're a fucking awesome escape yeah, we have I mean, to get the blessing of video games to kind of make this easier for us. And, you know, I often think back to, I wouldn't say I'm the most well-spoken person I've ever met, but a lot of my early vocabulary was influenced by heavily text-based games that I played and encountering all of these new big words that I had never encountered before when I'm playing like, I don't know, Final Fantasy VII or something. You got to read each word. You have to understand each word in the context of them. And like, that's part of development, right? Dude, yeah. Uh, Fallout 1 and Fallout 2 and online D&D comics taught me the English language. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I never asked you that question before. I was thinking about it the other day. I had never asked you how you learned English. Uh, but in school but really bad like people that learn english in school sure. in germany just speak really bad english and then online by being part of the english online community fascinating i, I appreciate you telling me that yeah. man i've always been curious but also to think of that this can numb yourself that this can make yourself disappear if you go back to that this is also kind of a double-edged sword right because we have not reached the end of the episode now. It's not like, oh, nice, we have found the flow state. This is why we love video games. Good talk, guys. Have a good day. No, this is this is going to be about more. This is going to be about how the it makes you escape from reality and how this escape can not only cause happiness and how this escape can kind of become addictive and how that can, can make you feel really bad about yourself afterwards. And I was wondering, is there like people that are video game designers that design games on purpose like this. That they make games that they force you into this flow state because they know that we love escaping reality. And I was absolutely. thinking... Yeah, and I was thinking about the games that gave me flow state. I also think it's absolutely that these exist. But I was like, 
let's think of some games I know that induce my flow state. And I was like, okay, Dungeon Keeper. This is where Peter Molyneux comes in again. <laughs> and I was like, okay, did Peter <laughs> Molyneux in every episode? I have these memories of playing Dungeon Keeper when I was like 13 years old. Uh-huh. And I start up the game at 7 p.m. And it starts and I go into the first dungeon. And all of a sudden, I'm in the end level. I have to fight the avatar. And the sun is coming up. And I'm like, what the fuck mm-hmm. just happened? Uh, <laughs> yep. And then I'm like, did Peter Mjolnir in the 80s like buy uh, a magazine like Psychology Daily and was like, oh, sweet, flow state. Let's have some <laughs> beans. And maybe I can include this in my God simulator, which is totally going to be the only God simulator that I'm ever going to make. <laughs> I, I think you're giving Peter way too much credit and forethought here. <laughs> yeah, he totally, obviously never did that. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. But this, but how can there be so many games that induce the flow state? If it's not done on purpose, then it has to have some other reasons, right? I would say that... I think that there are some things that could induce this flow state that are not um, engineered in a way to be addicting. They are simply addicting because they are fun, right? And we like that fun. On the other hand, companies are becoming more data-driven and more um, in tune with how to manipulate the psychology of people So for example, loot boxes, we've been talking about them in the last couple of episodes off and on loot boxes tap into this inherent, um, itch that our brains want to scratch of finding things, right? Mm -hmm. We went and we did a thing and we found it. And it's also like part of what can tap into issues with how people get addicted to gambling. It's gambling. yeah. Yeah. Right. And so knowing that, companies will manipulate games to scratch that itch so that you give them more money, you know, and, and, and they make, you know, a profit off of it to even go further into, wow, you know, I'm not saying that the original world of Warcraft was some fantasy land because I don't think it was, but as time has gone on and they gather more and more data, They've started finding, like, how long do people log in for? Um, what metrics can we use to get them to resub to us, even if they don't play? When they do play, what makes them happy? What doesn't? And, and so, like, the game has become so engineered that it's almost like, like, I've heard people say about New WoW, and I did play it for a little bit, that, like, it's like you think you're having fun, but you don't. Right. Like, yeah. like it has all the things that you think would be fun, but then they're not for some because reason, it's, it's not because it's all artificial. It's all just designed into that. It's yeah. It's designed to tap into your brain, but it, it it's a fake tapping into your brain. Right. Like it's not fun because it's fun. It's fun because it's engineered to be fun. Does that make sense? Like it totally does. You know, they didn't, they didn't, and you know, I'm, maybe I'm not giving the developers of World of Warcraft enough credit, but like there is a financial incentive to addicting your customers. And, you know, if, you know, maybe some of us can see through the veneer of that, but others are not so lucky. Yeah. I, let's jump ahead a little bit because you're saying something that, that would come up a bit later. And that is that um, we totally see that in games especially that we currently play because the industry is so refined by now and has so much data about how the general populace 
consumes these kinds of games. But there was a time where that wasn't the case, where um, people like Peter Molyneux, Molyneux or Kim Swift would create games that could also send you in a flow state in such a perfect way that you wonder how they achieved that. And I was, I thought to myself, how did they achieve it? And then we come across something that we hear all the time while these people create their games, and that is that they play them themselves. Right all the time during development and they try to figure out the spots that are fun because they lack a better word, right? They don't know how to describe what this state is that they get into that they enjoy so much. But they actively seek out flow by playtesting vigorously. Right. So I I was looking because Mihaly, he never finds the connection to video games. He has no interest in that. He never talked about video games. This is a connection that I came up with. Um, but it's actually not, because I was like, maybe there's a connection between flow and video games, and I was trying to find a connection. And I Googled it, and there's a bunch of studies by people that study video games in connection with youth that actually think that video games are some one of the strongest factors in flow-inducing activities. And I found this study from 2018, which was done by um, two psychology majors in the Thai University, where they monitored the gaming behavior of 500 students that were all like avid game video game players. And they tried to analyze which kind of games got them into the flow because they had the same questions like, how do, which, which, why do people go into flow in video games? Right. And they wanted to know how this influenced their relationship to gaming. And the first thing they did is after collecting all of their data, which when, when people say that they're in flow and shit like that, that they were figuring out how to structure this information. Um, and what they noticed is how they could separate the conditions for a flow state, which were these seven conditions, into two disjoint groups. They call the cognitive flow and the emotional flow. And this is important mm. um, to something that you just said about World of Warcraft, how it eats you up sometimes, but sometimes also feels good. So cognitive flow is all of the things that take all up your concentration and are connected to the skill that you need to have to do something. It's like that the challenge skill balance is good, that you feel good about it, but also that the goals in the game are clearly set so you can... Um, you, you, you know what you need to do, but also all of the feedback is unambiguous, um, just like you said in World of Warcraft with raiding. And if all of these three were met, you could go into cognitive flow. And cognitive flow is the kind of flow that makes you feel really good about yourself. It does not already make you lose yourself. That's not happening. You just you just start feeling it. Yeah, fuck, this is hard and I can do this. This is really nice. <laughs> And the game instantly shows me that I'm really good at it. This is awesome. Like you're playing Guitar Hero and you're hitting every note. It's just incredible. You, you just right. can't get break out of it. And this feels, and they notice that for to all the people that experience these conditions of the cognitive flow, it feels really empowering. So it's not only losing yourself, it's feeling like I can do something. I can change something. Then there's like emotional flow. And this takes up the rest of the conditions, which are like that you are completely concentrated, that you lose all feeling, feeling of self. And they noticed how students that encounter these emotional flow experiences, that they didn't always feel better after going through flow. 
and it often made them feel bad afterwards. Because even though the condition itself, like being in the flow experience, feels good, afterwards you feel like you just wasted your time and you missed mm. and you missed out on doing things. It's the bad it's the bad side of the coin, right? Um, right. And they actually like thirty six percent of the students that they ask all claim that the flow experience actually hurt them as humans because they use it to escape reality in a way in such in such a way that it's harmful to them. Well, think about it, right? Like just to use wow again as a like an example. I got into wow when I was a teenager in high school. Like I had to use my mom's credit card <laughs> like to to get my subscription because I couldn't do it myself. And you know, when I think about all of the good memories I have from the early days of playing WoW and the socialization I got and like think, you know, to those of you who weren't around 15, 17, whatever fucking years ago it came out, you know, it was really something because there wasn't, there just wasn't that big of a game that had that many people that you could talk to at one time. And there, yeah. and there was this whole element to it. And so it you it was so easy to get lost in this other world of all you know there there wasn't a discord that you could pop on and hang out with your friends unless like your raiding guild had a ventrilo server that they paid for or something like that um so it was a different world and and the reason i'm saying all this is that because like i got super sucked into wow and i think about like I had all these awesome experiences, but when I look back, like, man, I blew off so many people and so many things just to raid and wow. And like, was it worth it? I'm not sure. You know, looking back, it felt like it was worth it at the time, but you know, here I am removed from the experience later. And it, it's hard for me to tell whether I would spend that time again. Yeah, you know, I have the same thought. And this is the power that video games have over us. It's this two-sided power that they have that they can both make us feel empowered, but they can also make us feel like we wasted something. We lost right. something because we were too engrossed in the process. They make us feel competent and strong and they push our self-worth, but they also make us forget our troubles and the real life. And sometimes we shouldn't forget our troubles, you know, yeah. like sometimes it's really easy to just be like, well, I realize I have a hundred responsibilities piling up, but you know, I got to get sick DPS in this dungeon, bro. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I kept on digging in, in, into the whole flow thing. And there's a whole lot of papers about it in connection with video games uh, on different takes on for human society and how we must or must not change our approach towards video games, blah, blah, blah. But I actually had no interest in that question. I wanted to know something else. And I wanted to know, is there a game designer that creates their game, that, like the thing that you already answered, that creates their game purposefully in such a way that they do well at inducing flow? Like, I don't want to just generally claim, yes, of course they do. I want to know someone. I want to have, tell mm -hmm. a story about a dude that's like, I'm going to, like... I'm going to make a game and I'm going to make them fucking addicted to it because I know how to get them into the flow state and I'm going to take all of their money from them. I want to see if that exists. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to electronic arts. I was like, is there some stand in electronic <laughs> arts villain that's gone to just like, um, how's that guy? How's the CEO called Probst? 
Where he, uh, yeah, Larry Probst. Larry Probst, where he pops out of the shadow and he's like, oh, it was me all along. <laughs> <laughs> and he twirls his mustache. <laughs> Give me all your money. And like, of course, I always stumbled across these people that like, were like, but like there was an article like why dungeon keeper induces flow so well i didn't care about people that do it not on purpose right. i wanted someone that like of course they put their hearts into their games and the dungeon keeper is filled with love of peter molyneux for perfect worlds and perfect games i don't give a fuck about them i want people that ex- extort people for their in a sense of self-worth and they want to take everything out of them to make as much money as possible. I want to have someone that says, fuck yeah, let's manipulate people. And I wanted to have an example to tell you a story about that. And um, I did some digging and I found someone that actually claims Hmm. that they used the flow theory to create a game. And I was like, yeah, this oh. is going to be my evil guy. This is going to be the Who villain. are you going to ruin for me? Who's getting and ruined today? I think you don't know. He's called Genova Chan. Um, I don't know. He's from, he moved from Shanghai to California. He studied in California, in Southern California, and he researched something called dynamic difficulty adjustment. And using this dynamic difficulty adjustment and the theories of Mihaly, which he read thoroughly, he created a flash game called Flow, which is named after Mihaly's theory. And he created this game along with his mouth diseases and provided it for free for everybody to download. Uh, this was already a bummer for me because I was like, yeah, this is not going to be my villain. He gives away his game for free. It doesn't even have microtransactions. <laughs> I can't make this guy look bad. So I was a bit bummed out, but I kept reading. And I figured out that the main idea of this game that he made was that the difficulty does not need to be adjusted by the player, but in like in some menu where you say, I want my game to be hard, it adjusts subconsciously using the actions of the player during the gameplay. And his idea was like, because flow very much relies on this challenge skill balance that it's evened out so it can completely take over your information flow. And it must also feel like you're in control of the entire process. And because all of your actions influence the difficulty, you feel in control, but also this challenge remains exactly on your skill level. So you have perfect conditions to enter the flow state. That was his plan. And he was trying to make, like he was trying to prove a concept that you can create this on purpose and that you can on purpose create these video game conditions that induce the flow state. And by like tying all of these adjustments in the game um, to the player's actions, Chen tried to create fertile soil for the flow experience. The game was a pretty huge success because of that. People felt like it felt so like that it felt really good to play it for some reason. And it was so well received and nominated for um, a bunch of big prizes like the BAFTA Award. And wow. it just felt really good. And Chen was able to create that on purpose, hmm. which was a really important proof of concept. Because for now, we just think like, of course, evil companies use that to abuse people. Hmm. But we just claim this. He did it. He he wrote a mouth thesis about it. Well, I think that there's. I think that we should probably differentiate between difficulty scaling based on player actions and manipulative programming to get you to spend money. Right. Definitely. So, like, 
I don't know uh, what we were talking the other day about alien isolation and how um, as you get better at trying things to try and beat the alien, it learns with an AI to then try and stop you. So the challenge is always there. You can't do the same you know, thing multiple yeah. times, right? You have to always be on your feet um, or even shit like, I don't know, like a roguelike. You always have to be adapting. You always have to be thinking, even if you're good at the game, yeah. right? Okay. I think that kind of you know, the game learns based on your actions and then tries to get you into a sense of flow is different than we have purposefully engineered this game to be addicting to get you to spend money. It absolutely is, right? which, is why, which is why I was so disappointed in Chen. I wanted him to be more evil, but he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least, at least we've got a hero of the story. Yeah. So... Chen, our disappointing hero, after graduating from Master Thesis. <laughs> oh, I wish he was more evil. Yes, we always have an evil guy in every story, right? This time we can't we have We do. Him. So he founded, <laughs> just, just say yeah, he's the evil guys again. Um, sure. After graduating, yeah. Chen, he founded this game studio called... Evil Assholes. <laughs> he founded this game studio called That Game Studio. That's the name of, game, of the game studio. And oh, okay. they went on to create more games, one of which you might know, and it's called Journey. Oh fuck! Really? Yeah, he made Journey, and oh, that's so cool. Used the same principles for that game. Huh? That makes uh, sense. Friends of us, a friend of us, played this game a lot. Mm-hmm. And in the game, you kind of control a roped figure that wakes up in this desert between huge monuments, and you got to travel through a pretty huge but desolate world. It's a huge journey. The game is what the title says, right. and it's really pretty and fun to play. And you can totally see how Chen took a similar approach by making it an environment where it's easy to get into the flow state. A journey, as you might know, was very well received as well. Oh yeah. Tons of tons of fanfare. Yeah. Even though people say that all of these games by that game studio they're more art than game. If you know what I mean, right. even though I find the distinction a bit unnecessary, but it kind of holds up, right? I think it just depends on what people are looking yeah. for, right? Like gameplay can be anything from push a button and watch an experience to there's no story. You just do things right. Like it, there's, there's a whole spectrum there. And I think that the defining what is a game is the lines can be blurred. Yeah. You know, I think we yeah. ha- we all have in our head a definition of what a game is, but games are art. And, you know, um, I think of games, game genres, almost like different styles of art. Yeah. You know, and I I might not be into, you know, postmodernism or whatever when I go to an art gallery, but I might like really like Renaissance shit or something like that. You know, I'm just spitballing here. But I think so. I think that it's really like when people bitch about, oh, well, that's just a walking simulator. It's like, well, fuck off. Maybe I like to walk around, you know, like maybe that's fun to me. Um, So it has become kind of a derogative term for games without content, even though that's not true. There's simulators in which you just walk and that is in of itself something desirable if you want to do that well but i think that some people want stimulation in a different way right like and that's that's what's fascinating is that we are able to we're able to tailor games to specific types of people who think in specific ways right like I've been watching some of our friends play Factorio 
and I, I, I say see Vectorio and I think Vectorio is absolutely fascinating, but my brain doesn't work that way. Like I can see it. I can understand it. I can, I can see why someone would become really addicted to it, but my, my brain just doesn't pick it up. Yeah. Right. It doesn't get me in the same way that playing like a Sonic would. Right. Or, or, or playing, um, I don't know, Mega Man or something like that. One of the, one of the ones I grew up with. Yeah. But then again, super into platformers. So. so yeah, there's different kinds of games and all of them are kind of art, which is why I find this distinction yeah. a bit unnecessary. But what Chen says, and um, he was kind of the only guy that I found that had a company that actively puts flow into their games. Right. What Chen says that he he isn't money hungry. His first game he gave out for free. Then he had this contract with Sony to, to make his games for them. But he... He has right. no interest in creating multi-million dollar products. He doesn't want to use Flow for evil or make people addicted to his games in such ways that they can't stop playing it. He's not, he, he kind of, in a few interviews, he, he kind of seems to be like a, an enemy of this AAA game culture. He just wants it all to be niche games that are weird and innovative. Uh, he's, he's pretty cool. Uh, I should check out more of his games and what he's doing. He sounds pretty he's cool. not the villain I was looking for. And like, yeah. I kept digging and I realized two things. I will not find this stand in EA saying, hey guys, so we made this game to manipulate you into doing nothing else anymore. But what I did find is dozens of articles and papers going into different aspects of Mihaly's theories and what they mean for game design. Articles by people that are on the forefront of game design, from professors at Princeton to students of game design all over the world. And what you see, if you look for this, is that flow has moved into the center of attention. And if you think of yourself as a game designer, you should spend some time reading up on, on the flow experience because it's one thing to use your gut to figure out what's fun. And it's another thing to be able to look at a piece of game design and have the psych psychological knowledge about why this will suck people in or why it will not. Hmm. It's like a craft all of a sudden, not, not just uh, intuition. And I also think yeah. that maybe this is a little off topic, but like, this is going to be a weird question, but like, do games have to be fun? And, and I know that sounds crazy, but like games, you know, we're, we're talking about what makes games fun. Why do we enjoy them? But like, I can think of things that I was glad that I played, but I look back and was like, I don't know that I had fun playing this. This, this right? is a really good point. And I'm not sure that it's required for a game to be fun. Right? No. But I mean, like, is, you know, art, art is made by an artist and why they choose the the medium that they do to create the item that they produce is up to them. And, you know, I think it, but I think it comes down to what is it you want out of that piece of art? Do you want it to be commercially successful? Well, then it should probably be fun. Like right? if I play a game, if like you're making it just the stillness of the wind, for example, which is also people would describe more of an art piece as a game, but this game isn't fun. It makes you feel really sad. And in the end, you sit there and like, why did I do this to myself? But I also, I'm glad I did this to myself. I right. think that's what you mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I don't know. Uh, you know how like there's all these movies that are, I call them cry porn. Okay. <laughs> so they're, they're just there to make you sad. Yeah. And it'll be like, hey guys, 
did you know the Holocaust was really fucking horrible? Let's show you how horrible it was. It, it, this, with the story of a sad kid whose legs got blown off or something and the whole movie is just him scraping through, right? I might, as a person, want to experience that to understand the trauma that those people went through so that we never repeat it, right? Yeah. But it's not fun, right? Like, and so my, Andrea is constantly asking me like, hey, you want to watch this movie? And I'm like, what is it? And and once I get a feel for it, I'm like, I I don't have it in me to be sad today, right? Or I don't I don't know, I don't feel like a scary movie tonight, right? I'm just uh, I don't I don't have it. And so I think that like I don't know, I just wanted to make that distinction between fun, fun not necessarily being the goal, unless your goal is to be successful. In which case, then yeah, it better be fun. Yeah, that is very important um, distinction. That of course not every the game that's designed has to be built under the condition that if it doesn't induce flow, it's shit. No, but right. you can make, but certain games profit from that. And um, one should be aware of this. And I don't think that creating a game that induces flow is easy because just like the quote at the beginning by the poet, any outside force or gravity would immediately pull you out of that flow. So if there's, mechanics that these could also be like quirky mechanics that work bad or bugs or things breaking the predictability of the entire process like imagine if you play dark souls 3 the game gets you into flow so well because dark souls 3 is smooth as fuck it really is there's no bullshit in this game there's nothing there's no bugs there's no glitches this it's Mm -hmm. just smoothness so there's no gravity pulling you out of flow this is why dark souls 3 is one of great examples of a game if you get into boss fight mode that gets you into perfect mm-hmm. flow fighting Fri- Sister Friede for se- 17 her. hours, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but creating a flow-inducing game, what I'm saying is that it requires a lot of precise work. It's it's not an easy craft. Just because you know the theory doesn't mean it's easy. And right. because you have to treat this tiny corridor between boredom and anxiety, these are two words that Mihaly uses a lot because like, if you have the challenge skill balance, if the challenge is too high and your skill is too low, you experience anxiety instead of flow. And if your skill is too high mm-hmm. and the challenge is too low, you experience boredom. You get bored. So you have to find yeah. the balance between that. But in the end, like humanity's love for these games started growing out of people losing themselves in these games and finding a way to escape whatever worries they have. And a well-made game appropriately challenges you and lets you flow into a blissful state of nothingness. That's why we love these games. That for this is a mass market that every that is so loved by people. It's an escape. Yeah. And I totally get it too, because think about think about when you find a game that you really like how you can just really lose yourself in it. And I'll say that like there's almost a comfort in the familiarity of what you're doing and and being good at it. And I think that people seek that out. So like, um, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily specific to video games. Like you mentioned flow within movies, you know, like my fiance, she loves, she loves Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, I need to talk to your fiance about (laughs) Buffy. I'm a huge Buffy Dude, geek. She, I love Buffy. She has Buffy t-shirts and like she's met like James Marsters and stuff. And like, anyway, um, point being is that 
you know, she'll, she watches Buffy just over and over and over and over. And I told her one time that I think that the reason that she does this is because it is familiar and she can just zone out to it. Right. She knows she knows all the twists. She knows all the lines, all the characters are going to say. She knows exactly how they're going to go. And she doesn't have to devote like she she can just be in it. That's really right? cool. Yeah. One important question, though. Spike or Angel? Okay. You, you, oh, are you asking me? You don't me? get the reference. Okay, it's fine. Ask no, me. I get the reference. Spike, absolutely. absolutely Spike. Yes. <laughs> Fuck any, Angel any and his stupid spinoff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay so actually i never actually watched really it's i've seen some buffy um i i never really watched angel that much um i think maybe saw like one episode uh i heard it was okay that it kind of was like not as good but that's just personal preferences for of people who have talked to me about it by the way they made those into comics later that continued the story Ooh, i didn't know that yep there are comics out there that are i think i think like canalytical direct continuations of those characters and the stories so what i did figure in the end to get back to our story mm -hmm. is that there probably as we already assume that there is some evil corporation that makes these inescapable game loops that also induce the flow state to bind you to their games like sauron bound the Nazgul to his ring, shit like that. And hmm. they will be able to do this, maybe not only by theorizing about how to build a game, but also just by testing them thoroughly and doing these questionnaires and figuring these out and then having these, um, looking at Nihali's theories and adjusting the scale of difficulty to exactly fit the scale of the testers and the emotional state of the, of the testers. And... Because Mihaly's models of flow are publicly av available and very well known, um, and especially among game designers. As I said, I found so much information about people discussing this on game design forums, where flow seems to be like the um, state of art of how to make an engaging game. And it kind of makes sense, too, because the video game market is so very it's oversaturated that you need to find a way to beat your competitors. And the, right. the big companies have to do that and the indie developers have to do that. They have to find their own little patch of land in on this market. And they can't just do this with dirty advertisement anymore, like we heard in so many episodes, or corporate espionage, mm -hmm. but they have to make <laughs> the, the games induce a state of, if you call it immersion, if you call it flow or get you into the zone, they, that they grab your attention. And don't let go of it. You know, I'm 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 wondering here uh, how much this has been perfected by the usage of early access. Um, so back in the day, you might get a demo of a game in a magazine or some shit, or someone would copy a floppy disk for you, um, and then you know the the feedback was a lot different um, when early games were being made and you were talking about testers and I find it fascinating now to think about how um, early access has removed a lot of the way that games were originally tested because now you're essentially putting it out to the market and say test it for me right yeah. um, and so you get feedback then on what would induce a fun gameplay mechanic, you know, and what was fun and what wasn't by releasing it to the mass market before it's ready. Yeah, it's really, really interesting how the market changes in that way, that all of a sudden the mm -hmm. testing is in such a broad scale 
and connect it to every consumer all at once. Well, then you have people too who are like, I won't buy early access games because I'm not, I'm not going to pay to test your game that I might not like. Right. And I feel like even though this episode starts kind of, we we kind of got into an uplifting session there where it was about all about happiness and how to be happy and Mm -hmm. how to escape yourself and have a content life. And now I think I feel like because of this, the thing you're saying is this is probably abused quite a lot that we're kind of drifting into this dystopian painting that we're drawing all of a sudden. And this is a bit weird, isn't it? Well, I think that we're constantly being manipulated in every aspect of our lives all the time by people who want our money and our attention and our data and our whatever. But I, that was all, I think that was always going to happen with the advent of big data and you know, video games are video games are not um, removed from this, right? They they are they are ultimately, even though they are art, video games as we typically conceptualize them are still a product that they want us to buy, you know. And people's livelihoods depend on whether or not we give them that money. And I also think because and, this is our hobby and we love it, that we should be aware of it. Of course, and it helps to be aware of it. Yeah, understanding the flaws with something you love can help you to appreciate it better when things are shitty. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's also a dystopian picture because Mihaly, he found that we are happiest when we can be not ourselves, which is weird, right? For a while, yeah. but occasionally we have no choice but to be ourselves, as you said. And I do not want to stop anyone from gaming because of this. But I feel like with this knowledge that we probably mostly love this hobby because of how it makes us feel smart and strong and competent and, to be honest, makes us feel like we are not in this very scary world anymore. We should at least spend a minute to consciously make the decision of escape instead of falling back into it because it has taken control of us. So... I don't know if this helps any of you, but uh, the way that I have been able to enjoy video games in a very busy life that I live uh, is that I will set aside time and I will specifically say I am going to do all of the things that I need to do today or at least some semblance of them. And then during this time and that time, I am going to play this game and that's it. And it's like I've earned it, right? Like, I know that during between 8 and 12, or I'm just making something up here, I'm going to be playing whatever it is that I want and I'm going to lose myself yes. in it. And, and that allows me to then have a balance between all the garbage I have to deal with on a daily basis and then also be able to enjoy the things that I'm doing, right? Like I'm sure that you've tried to do some kind of fun activity and you can't stop thinking about all the other bullshit in your life. That's one way that I separate it. It's almost like they're in two separate boxes, right? Or like my fiance and I have this thing where not even just about video games, like when we sit down to eat and and like have some time to talk to each other, um, we start off with, okay, let's get all the work related bullshit out of the way first. And then we're not allowed to talk about it. We're we're putting it in its box, right? We're going to forget about it. And so like, that's how I manage to keep this balance between being hopelessly addicted to a game and uh, you know, my real life stuff is that is that I delineate this is the box that it lives in and I'm going to get into that box for this certain amount of time and then I'm going to step away from yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's to be the one in charge and use this flow that the video games can give you to empower yourself. 
but you have to be conscious of it. And yeah. dude, life is tough. And to actively escape your life, to return stronger and more confident because there's something that makes you feel like you can make a change, that's a good thing. And this is how this episode started, right? It's when, like, when, when I started researching this. It's because you told me in another episode that I play these puzzle games because it makes me feel like I'm in control. And I was like, dude, you're absolutely right. That's why I play these games. It makes me feel in control. It makes me feel better about myself. I was just re-listening to that episode for something the other day. I was looking for some specific thing, and I listened to that part, and I was like, oh, no, I broke him. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting, though. It did stick with me for a bit. And not being able to change this world is so frustrating. And this is the best thing we have to feel better about this mess. Yeah. And just how these words initiated the creation of this episode, that the words that you said, your words would end it. What do you think of this? I think that this is a really fascinating thought exercise, and I'm really glad that we did this. And this is, as those of you who have been listening for a long time will note, this is pretty different than anything we've talked about before, um, at least in in episode format. Um, But I think that I think that video games are like anything, right? They're they're easy to lose yourself into them if you if you want to. And that can be a really good reset, right? Like putting yourself in someone else's shoes, putting yourself into a situation you'd never be in. You know, there've been studies that that stuff is good for the brain. Um it can it can help you to understand other cultures. Um you know, video games are an awesome tool, but they're just like anything that you know, we seek them out for a reason. And we have to be careful that that reason doesn't overwhelm our real life, right? And so it's important to have these kind of discussions, I think, because much like Doc said, understanding why we do the things we do can help us to enjoy them and can also help us to not ruin our lives with them, right? So um, I obviously love video games. They have significantly influenced my life in a positive way. There are other times when I think back and I'm like, man, I, I, you know, kind of burned some bridges over some dumb shit with video yeah. games, right? And that's, that's learning, right? That's learning what your limits are. And that's learning. <laughs> Guys, I don't think we should play football anymore. Guys, I don't like this anymore. <laughs> Scary docs came out. Ooh. Yeah, I, I buried that guy deep in the woods. <laughs> together together with my copy of blood Bolt. but you know like it's okay right like um we all have our we all have things that make us mad and we all have bad days and we all have these confluence of you know uh we we were we were talking about this lately um i'll tell a small anecdote i had a stream the other day um where like nobody showed up Okay. Uh, and it was, there was a, there's a few reasons for that. I started early. Uh, one of our friends was also streaming at the time. I was playing a bunch of random bullshit. Like people were at work. It's the middle of summer. There's a whole lot of rational reasons why no one showed up. Right. Um, and then I got like, I got like really grumpy and I was just like, I'm so mad. Like, bruh, no one showed up. What's the, I just wasted all this time. Right going back to something we talked about earlier, I put all this time in and I put all this effort in and I didn't get anything out of it, right? And so like, I talk about having emotional brain and rational mm-hmm. brain, 
right? An emotional brain was like, I'm so mad about nothing. And rational brain just keeps looking at emotional brain and being like, dude, this is, this does not matter at all. This is like totally fine. Everybody's cool here. You know, you'll be, give it like five hours and you'll be completely over this and have forgotten about it. Right. But emotional brain says, rah. And so I think that, you know, video games can be really good at tapping into emotional brain, but we have to have rational brain to keep emotional brain in check. And that is me making some bullshit up on the fly about how my brain works. So mileage may vary, but um, I really enjoyed this. (laughs) And this is a short version. Thank you. uh, I'm sorry if any of you were, expecting a different kind of episode but i do like to cover weird bases of related to video games and i think this is important in future episodes because we only ever think of the motivation of the consumer in 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 very financial terms and in very broad terms but i think now we have a baseline for maybe a psychological level of how video games are experienced that we can use later on to fall back on. Yeah. But I also think, you know, I appreciate that sometimes you do some episodes that are more um, broad in, and, and, and discuss concepts rather than, you know, I'm usually very focused on, well, today we are going to talk about Crash Bandicoot. Or something like that, right? And it's it's a self-contained story, and we might be able to have anecdotes that we pull here and there. But like, I also think it's really important to have the kind of discussions like we just did, where we talk about like, well, why the fuck are we doing this at all, <laughs> right? Like, why? What is the fucking? Why do we even care about these things? With why do we care about having a plastic device in our hand that can make a pixelated hedgehog move on a screen? <laughs> why, why do we do this, right? So I think it, I think it's good to step back. I, I appreciate this episode. Good job. Let's talk man. about sources for a second before we end this. Um, I have four main okay. sources. It's a tech, TED Talk from 2004 by Mihaly himself. Please look at it. It's like 20 minutes long. He's the coolest dude. I love him so much. I can listen mm-hmm. to this guy endlessly. He's really nice. Um, then there's um, an article called Flow, The Secret to Happiness, which is a scientific a paper. Then I have another scientific paper called Flow Experience in Computer Game Playing Among Thai University Students by Supat Sanjam Sai and Daruni Fukao. And The Flow State's Influence During Game Design Process by Ramon Diaz. And The Last Flow Theory Game Design by Think Game Design. Yeah, and these were all uh, very helpful to create this episode. And I hope you all enjoyed it. Yeah, good times. Um, thanks to all of you who listen. Um, thanks to Quad Laser for producing our music. And um, anything else you want to say there, Docs? No. Um, stay true to yourself and use video games as empowerment and not only as an escape. Yeah. Take care. Yeah, I think we'll leave it at that. Be good to each other out there. I'll see you. Bye.